Hey everybody, this is Michael here from Agoraten.com. We're back with another episode of the podcast. This week we are talking with Dr. Mitch McGee. He is a microbiologist at ASU and he is going to tell us all about GMOs, the hot topic right now. Um, I was very excited to talk about this because I had a lot of questions and I wanted to get a lot of uh, information out there for you guys to understand that you know GMOs really aren't that bad for us. Um, we talk about how you know, there's a lot of unethical things possibly going on in just agriculture in general, but in terms of food safety, we all agree that it's they're pretty safe. Um, on top of that, though, we talk about a lot of other things, whether vaccines cause autism, talk about the gut microbiome and what you can do to uh, improve it, and just more information about it, and really just a whole lot of general science topics so this isn't a nutrition exercise heavy podcast but i think there's still a lot of really good information in here so i'd really encourage you guys to listen to it all right here we go thanks for listening all right everybody welcome back to the agora podcast i'm hopefully not in the way of everybody uh i'm joined here today with once again dr mitch mcgee microbiology microbiology professor here at arizona state university very excited to have him on here we wanted to have him come on to talk more so about some of the specific things that people are, I guess, concerned about. More so like genetic modification of foods and of plants and if that's really causing us health issues and if that's something we should actually uh, be concerned about. So we're here. Dr. Mitch Mingy, would you mind giving yourself a quick introduction? Uh, hi, I'm Mitch. Uh, I'm a microbiologist who's uh, Study my research area has been focusing on what we call uh, immune responses to infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. I study several uh, important pathogens. One of these is tuberculosis. It causes uh, a disease in about a third of the world's population. It's a major pathogen. Uh, and in Arizona, we have a disease called valley fever. And so I've spent a lot of time studying the basic uh, mechanisms of how the body responds to valley fever and if we could create a vaccine. So that's, I'm interested in, in infectious disease and how the body responds. Good, because we're not going to talk about that today. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great topic for another podcast, though. Right? Yeah, well, we'll have to have you come back on to actually yeah. talk about what you what you research. <laughs> but I teach microbiology, which yes. which you were in the class, and and uh, we went over a wide range of topics. Yes. So, and that's what gave me the the inspiration to talk about this. So let's just dive right into it. Can you give us a brief uh, overview of what? GMO, genetic modified, uh, genetically modified organism is, and in, in whether it's safe or not to eat in our food. Okay, there's uh, the the basic definition is that uh, what we know is that the genes of a plant or of a human uh, are encoded in his genome, right? And so each gene basically encodes for one protein. And what we try to do with genetic modification is take enhanced characteristics from one organism and put it into another. Uh, now let's talk about kind of the worst case scenario I think of is, is uh, Monsanto's use of... Uh, oh, that's a famous name. I've heard that. <laughs> Cited in literature for quite a lot. And, and so they have... Uh, uh, a, a gene, they have a protein that will, will degrade the molecule Roundup, which is an, uh, a herbicide to keep weeds down. So if you put this gene inside of corn, 
you can spray Roundup on the corn and it won't hurt it because that protein that degrades the Roundup degrades it so it can't hurt the plant, but it kills all the weeds. So the idea is it's better for the farmer to be able to grow and not have to worry about weeding and doing all the other stuff he has to do. Um, and yet he can spray Roundup and it won't hurt his crop. Uh, now there's a bunch of problems with that. Uh, Roundup is a weed killer, uh, an herbicide, and it may have effect on human people. I, it's my understanding, I, don't, I haven't seen the data, but if they take, uh, if they stop spraying for a certain period of time, by the time that product gets to um, the table, there's no detectable Roundup on that food. Um, I mean, I, that's my understanding of the way it goes. Uh, now, that's kind of the worst case scenarios. And you can see now on there's commercials now, lawyers asking, have you ever been exposed to Roundup? If you have, you may be at increased risk of getting lymphoma or other cancers. Mm -hmm. So the people who have to deal with Roundup probably have a higher level of exposure to, to Roundup than people who get the food. Uh, the other major problem I have with Monsanto is their business practices. Uh, the scary thing is right now there are like four major companies that do genetic modification. Uh, two of them are talking about merging so that now instead of having four, we're only going to have two. So two major companies, one in the U.S., one in Germany, are going to contain almost all of the intellectual property of of being able to create genetically modified organisms. And most people are worried about this, being able to get what's gonna be the next herbicide after Roundup, because Roundup, the, the patent on Roundup, is my understanding, is getting ready to quit soon. Mm -hmm. So they need the next generation of herbicides so that they can put their gene in, into that and keep their product going. So what they've done though is they, you know, Farmers used to be able to save a certain portion of their crop for next year's seed. Now Monsanto won't let uh, farmers maintain a seed stock. They have to buy seed every year. And these genetically modified seeds are very expensive. Now the initial concept of genetic modification has been around, in my view, for tens of thousands of years. And if you look at it, we have been doing what's called selective breeding. We take the characteristics of two what we think enhanced plants would be. We cross them and we hope those enriched characteristics make more yield, better product. And so we've been doing selective breeding for tens of thousands of years in animals and plants and that has led uh, to some problems here, basically a lot of monoculture, meaning that these big fields only contain one genetically uh, uh, strain of, of wheat or, or rice or whatever it is. And if you get a, a disease that can wipe that one out, you can lose your whole crop yeah. very quickly. Mm -hmm. So we're losing genetic diversity while we're gaining enhanced characteristics for an individual crop. It's, uh, we're losing some genetic diversity. And so you've heard about some of these, uh, these seed, there's, there's seed banks now that are going out and collecting the wild varieties of all these and banking them. So we'll have that genetic information mm -hmm. later, uh, which I think is a, a great thing that we're doing. So you never know when we're gonna need a new characteristic. Mm -hmm. So genetic modification in its strictest definition is taking a gene from one organism, putting it into another. In this case, like uh, this um, 
Roundup resistant gene and put it into the plant, and so the plant is Roundup resistant. Mm -hmm. But one of the better uh, definitions, uh, a good aspect of it, mm -hmm. is you may have heard of golden rice. Uh, around the world, rice is a major food crop, and the white, normal white level rice does not have a high level of nutrition. One group has created what they call golden rice. So they've inserted the gene to produce beta carotene, which is a precursor to vitamin A, and it is a more nutritious rice. Mm -hmm. And so in areas where they have resource poor uh, conditions, they can't take vitamins on a daily basis, or they can't get mm -hmm. enough uh, adequate food. This is a supplement to a normal staple that uh, is more nutritious. I have no problems with that. Mm -hmm. But it's still inserting a foreign gene from outside, I think, I'm not sure where they got the beta carotene gene, carrots, put it into rice. Mm -hmm. And so that's still classified as a GMO. So that's a GMO. Say, so would you say that there are more uh, instances and cases where it has, where genetic modification poses a positive benefit over a negative, or is that kind of difficult to say? Uh, I think there, most people would say that it's the op opposite. Most most of the business practices are aimed at putting these antibiotic or uh, herbicide resistant genes into crops so that they can overcome spraying, which most people would say is a negative. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, interesting. Um, Jay, do you have any questions? Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering. Uh, so you say that they spray these herbicides on the plants, right? Um, has there ever been any cases where, um, like, so they're, they're, the herbicides are used to protect against like the, the insects? Well, or weeds, or or yeah. they protect against insects. Yes, yes. Um, have, has there ever been a case where the insects that are meant to protect? Um, uh, use the herbicides to protect against, like develop a resistance to the herbicide? Absolutely. And it's very difficult. There have actually been, trans, I think, an instance of transference of resistance gene into some plants outside the field. So the people are worried about these genes becoming uncontrolled. And if, if we take a step back and think about herbicide resistance or, or, or uh, bull weevil resistance, like antibiotic resistance, Antibiotic resistance in microbes is a major problem in the world. We're running out of, out of adequate uh, antibiotics to treat uh, some diseases, tuberculosis, some of those. You may have heard of multi-drug resistant TB. Mm -hmm. If you have the high form of that, the ex extremely drug resistant TB, there's not a good treatment system. And so same thing could happen. Those resistance genes can get out, get into the wild, this is the thought, and uh, could then become part of nature and get into places where uh, we don't want them. So that was a really good question. So I'm, I'm assuming, is this one of the bigger concerns that people have? Because I, I know the, the possible health concerns, like you said, um, usually this doesn't make it to the consumer, um, the, the herbicide, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not there anymore once it hits a person's uh, dinner table. But um, that's a health concern, but now there's this, oh. um, the ethical concerns that come along with it. I think the ethical concerns are underneath the health concerns, but uh, you're, you're, they're, they're, come, they're becoming more important. So that's, it's something that, you know, being able to control what you put out into the wild yeah. 
is is very difficult and um, this this kind of leads to kind of so we use traditional molecular biology tools to put genes into plants or, or take genes out of plants and that's been around since basically the 1970s uh, we're now coming up and, and hopefully we spend a little bit of time on this new gene editing system called CRISPR um, and technically it's CRISPR-Cas9 um, this has become so easy for doing genetic editing in plants, deleting a gene or adding a gene, uh, that it is, it's a phenomenal wave that's hitting science. In fact, there was a story, uh, and it's so easy to do, that uh, a guy in California took some of his own white cells, did a CRISPR editing in his garage, and injected them back into himself. I remember you talking oh. about that in class. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't it doesn't take super high level facilities to do some of this CRISPR editing. Mm. You have to get some tools to be able to do this. And know a thing or two. <laughs> and you have to know a thing or two. But uh, just go play so is this one thing genes. that you think that we can control? Let's say uh, a gene that you don't want uh, out in the wild. Um, it's, you can just take it out just like that. Well, in theory, so what they're what this is kind of getting targeted for is what they call, um, you know, basically editing out species. You can delete species. So in 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 Africa, uh, there's groups of mosquitoes that specifically carry uh, malaria. So the question is, if you killed off all of those malaria-carrying mosquitoes, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a. I would argue to say that it's a good thing. Initially, then, that's the thought. Yeah, but then you have there's this this issue where okay, you're eliminating a whole species that's part of a food chain. Mm -hmm. How does that affect the rest of the exactly? How does yeah, that affect exactly. the rest of the, the, the bottom you know, line? And the what top of what it? eats you know most most of the larvae that are swimming around in the river? All the little fishies that eat the larvae that then get eaten by bigger fishies. You don't know what's going to happen. Will another species just kind of take over that realm? Uh, but this is called gene drives. And this is as a result of, of, of CRISPR editing of, of DNA. We could create gene drives to kill off whole species. Now, I'm, I... See, that's, a, that's just a scary thought. Well, I mean, so we've... But we've killed off one species that we know of. I mean, intentionally, smallpox. It's still alive in some, some labs. Uh, smallpox is actually a fairly small virus. Yeah. Well, actually, it's a large virus of all the viruses but it only has about 228 genes. That doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound like much. People have about 20,000 genes, 25,000 genes. Um, but what, what we know now, all the advances in molecular biology uh, have gotten so great that we can now do what we call gene synthesis to build a genome. Uh, uh, one of uh, a famous scientist, Craig Venter, who was part of the Human Genome Sequencing Project, has been recently working on creating what's been the smallest replicating genome. He got it down to about 754 genes from a, a, an organism called, called Mycoplasma. And so it's one of the smallest living bacteria. So only 700 genes are required for replicating life. But the, what he did that was so interesting is that he created that genome through chemistry. He synthesized the DNA and put it together and assembled it with molecular biology tools. 
So he created a synthetic genome. Then he took that genome and put it into a bacteria that had all of its nucleic acids removed, and that started replicating. That is the first case of man replicating life. Now, to some people, that's scary. It is. It is, because I'm sure you've heard uh, people calling it as playing God. Yes, because absolutely. Because you have the power to eliminate eliminate a complete species from the food chain. You also have right. the power to create and selectively, you selectively create a new species exactly the way that you want it. Exactly. So That's, that is genome by design. Now, if you think so, we're thinking about that smallpox only has 228 genes. One of the things that's even scarier is influenza. Influenza has been in the, uh, in the news recently. We've had a very bad influenza year. Mm -hmm. uh, over 80 children have died from influenza in the U.S. That's a very high number compared to what normally happens. Influenza only has eight to nine genes. Now, one of the big worries is, is uh, back in 1918, a strain of influenza came around uh, that wiped out hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people worldwide. And what was strange is it didn't really kill the very young. It didn't kill the very old. It killed the 15 to 35-year-olds. It killed you guys. It was a range <laughs> that it was selectively it, it was it was it was you know it, it was really strange uh, but so here it is this small genome nine genes people are worried about the ability to rebuild that influenza genome and turn it loose so to weaponize it basically well all they have to do is get it back out there right it's 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 possible to do that with the gene synthesis tools. So it, if if something like that happened, um, and we'll we'll turn it back to to GMOs in a second. Oh, sorry. But I, but I want to I want to ask. I wanna <laughs> well, ask it's this. it's a genetic. Yeah. It's a it's basically creating a genome by design, which is yeah. genetically mod, genetically modifying things. So if something like that were to happen, like a bioterrorist releases something like this out into the world, would we have something to combat it, counteract it, or it all depends on the disease. So with influenza, right now, the way we like to vaccinate people with influenza, a lot of people are afraid of vaccines. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. <laughs> uh, a lot of people are afraid of vaccines, but vaccines are one of the single most uh, effective mechanisms of reducing mortality since they started in maybe the 14 or 1500s mm -hmm. with, with uh, smallpox vaccinations mm -hmm. that they try. But um, one of the things that I think is, is, is telling is that um, you, you can design, um, I lost my train of thought here. Sorry, you have to edit. You can design <laughs> something. Well, I'm saying, Vaccines. so if you, so, oh, well, so you could design a vaccine. Yeah. So yeah. the idea is if you knew what was out there, you could design a vaccine fairly quickly and get it up and going. But a normal, a normal route, it takes about nine months to predict what the strains of vaccines are going to be, of the strains of influenza that are going to be coming around. And so they have to predict that six to nine months in advance to be able to make the stocks. And you said gotcha. that we could develop a vaccine fairly quickly. Is this assuming that the whatever we're fighting against has a 
like you said, like nine genes in his Well, genome? It's a, the genome science is not that critical. We think of it, we have very great vaccines for Bordetella pertussis. You've heard of that whooping cough. They make commercials about that now, and I'm I'm kind of sensitive. Is my my daughter just had a baby, mm -hmm. and you know my my granddaughter is only two months old, and so one of the things that I did is that she doesn't have any immunity right now, so I went and got a booster shot for pertussis. Yeah. It's actually, it's a combination: it's diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus, because I don't want to be carrying pertussis and expose her. That's called cocoon immunization. Yeah. You immunize all the people around the susceptible groups. Um, so uh, uh, with that, if you, so uh, this organism, pertussis, uh, has thousands and thousands of genes, but we know what the protective antigens are. And so we could probably make that fairly quickly. But there's a lot of diseases we've not been able to create vaccines for. HIV. HIV has been one of the most actively studied uh, viral diseases, and we can't make a good vaccine for it yet. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's let's get back to GMO. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll round that up real quick because there's some other topics I want to talk about. So f just to summarize, um, GMOs are they in our food? Are they generally overall safe for us to consume, or is it still kind of fuzzy? I'm not What's concerned. I'm not concerned on GMO corn, GMO wheat, uh, in, in terms of uh, herbicide containment. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm concerned about the, the ethics, some of the ethical things yep. of, of dealing of big companies dealing with farmers. Uh, and I could understand people wanting to know if there's if their food has GMOs in it. I am uh, I'm not one of these people that say, don't label it. Uh, so I think that if it was properly labeled and people had a choice, the marketplace will decide. Yeah. But there are places where we need food. We need uh, uh, rice that can grow in salty water because our oceans are, 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 the ability to grow rice is, is getting brackish water is a major problem. Uh, we need uh, higher production. We need uh, corn that can produce more corn kernels. Mm -hmm. We need rice that can produce more kernels, wheat that can produce more kernels. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, because we're not going to have enough food in, in 100 years to feed everybody that's going to be here. Yeah. And we, can... and we can do some of that through genetic modification. Gotcha. All right. There's the mic drop number one. Cool. Um, <clears throat> so now I wanted to get into, into um, vaccines. This is the exciting stuff too, also. Um, I know we talked a little bit about this in class and, and last mm -hmm. time. So can you give us the background story about how the whole vaccine controversy started? So for, for real quick, for those who don't know, there's this whole controversy going around that vaccines lead or cause, lead to or cause autism. And that's not necessarily grounded in truth. And we'll hear why. Yeah, which is why I'm assuming why parents are a lot more hesitant to vaccinate their children. Now, even with right. something like with the flu. With the flu, yeah. with pertussis, we had, you know, I, 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 I want to be careful how I say this. Um, last year, it, it doesn't sound like much, but over 50 children died of pertussis. Which is a lot considering we had the technology to prevent it. Well, that's right. a lot considered, well, as 15, 20 years ago, that was near zero. Yeah. It should, it should be zero. Yeah forever since we have yeah, exactly. the vaccinations and 
so from zero to 50, same that's thing, a... there's, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of children's diseases, uh, measles, mumps, rubella. Yeah. And it was the MMR that started off the controversy with this uh, English physician. His name was Andrew Wakefield. Uh, he wrote us, he was actually studying uh, a small set of children, I believe it was eight or nine children, mm -hmm. that had uh, an intestinal disease. And he noted that some of them had um, autism-like symptoms, uh, and he attributed the development of the autism with the deposition of the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Now, that was a study with eight children um, back in, 90, in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. Since then, uh, which is a reasonable, I have no problem with him publishing a paper like that if that was the real result. Mm -hmm. It turns out that he was uh, trying to promote a different therapy for measles, mumps, rubella with, associated with a company. And he wanted to people, not people to be vaccinated with measles, mumps, and rubella. And he ended up manipulating this paper to make the MMR vaccine look bad. So people could go to the, the RMM vaccine <laughs> or, or something. And, and so over a course of time, you know, uh, science, the way science is done is that uh, a, a person will typically do a series of studies. They actually have to write a grant first and get somebody to fund it because many scientific studies cost tens, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Um, and so you have to write a grant to tell the funding agency, this is what I want to do. You do that study and then you write it up and it undergoes peer review. Mm -hmm. Peer review means that other scientists get a chance to say, well, you didn't do this control or I want to see this experiment. So you get a chance to revise and edit it. Mm -hmm. uh, well, a lot of studies were started evaluating MMR efficacy and the associated with autism. And the Center for Disease Control ended up releasing in, I believe, 2007, what they call a meta-study of over 400,000 children that showed no association of autism with the wow. MMR vaccine. So you got you got 400,000 versus the eight versus the eight, right? And we still have this hysteria. Well, vaccines. what happens is a few uh, prominent people take this up. Yes, true. Uh, and if somebody has a voice and they want to use it, uh, uh, some people will be afraid. Why do you think it is, though, that those those figures uh, take that stance? Well, it's... Uh, and this is more so just an opinion question that I want to... Well, ask. you know, so uh, Andrew Wakefield, and I haven't seen this yet. I should have seen this. Yeah. He, he created a, a basically a... Um, documentary called Vaxxed, where he's kind of chronicled his side of everything. Right. Uh, and this was submitted to the Tribeca Film Festival. Mm -hmm. um, and oh, I'm blanking out on his name. Uh, uh, was it a celebrity? Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, um, did you say, was it George Clooney? No, no, no. It's... Uh, a celebrity. A and celebrity. He, and he, <laughs> like, what movie has he been? He was on The Godfather, and uh, he it was uh, he was the Godfather in Godfather Two. The oh, there you go. There you go. We got talking. Context. I'll find him. <laughs> anyway, his son had autism, and he ended up uh, denying this 
this this film then a spot in his Tribeca Film Festival um, after he studied it. And although he still thinks there may be an association. Robert De Niro? Robert De Niro. De Niro. Oh, my gosh. There yeah. we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, <laughs> I mean, as famous of a man as Robert De Niro is, I feel like if he, if he takes a stance on something, people will pick it up real quick. Well, but there's, you know, there's there's uh, other people that I'm not going to mention that that uh, who are who think they're um, doing they're doing people a favor by saying there's this causation out there. Yeah. Um, and 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 people have to believe in the science, but. As we know, people uh, are fearful of science yeah. these days. Unfortunately, it's a lot easier to listen to somebody famous than to listen to the actual uh, science. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, there's people that still deny climate change. There's people that still, uh, like yeah. was, uh, what I was mentioning oh. in HIV uh, in I'm class. I'm pretty sure there's still people that deny that the world is round. There are flat. <laughs> that, the, that is a movement. That is now a movement. There's still the, the flat earthers. Yeah. Um, you and, go far enough, you fall off the edge. And... Uh, and and so you, it's it's um, if a difficult situation because sometimes people let fear override their ability to think. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's one of the, the easiest weapon to use, right? It, it it is an easy weapon. So what do you think? people in in your position and our position uh, can do to perpetuate the, the actual science we'll talk right about things. the science it, exactly is is that uh, I was in I was in a hospital uh, waiting room uh, waiting for an appointment and there was a, a young pregnant mother and a lady was sitting next to her and this lady started talking to her about don't give your baby vaccines. And I had to, Oh my God. Yeah. And she goes, I'm a nurse. I know this stuff. And she's a nurse? And, wow. And I I had to say something. And I said, ma'am, you know, talk to your own physician. You need to get the facts. The, the association of wow. MMR and autism has been debunked. The paper has been retracted. Um, the science is not valid. Yeah. Uh, which happens. Sometimes papers get retracted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I said, look, I'm studying infectious disease and vaccines for 30 years. This stuff works. Yeah. And if I can ask, what was her response? She she said, uh, she said, thank you for talking to me. I'll talk to my doctor. That's, that's, <laughs> all, that's the only thing I could, could yeah. say. But there are people who don't want to talk to their doctors. There's people that yeah. fear that there's some conspiracy out there. Unfortunately, there are people who believe that their doctors have agendas, which is why they're resistant to, to talk to their physicians. Yes. Yeah. And so, well, you also have to be careful that your physician may not always know. Yeah. You a, don't, do not, do yeah. not hesitate to challenge your physician. Yeah. And if he doesn't, if he can't respond to a challenging question, get another physician. <laughs> Next thing. Okay, cool. That just completely baffles me that this this person was a nurse and then she believed that the vaccines actually didn't work well i mean there's there was you know and during the hiv i was in graduate school as the hiv epidemic hit in the early 1980s and mm -hmm. people were paralyzed they didn't know what it was they did not know how to fight it they did not they thought it was a chemical interaction of 
a certain set of homosexual men who took drugs and these kinds of things, and I thought it I was... I remember a, that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took a number of years for people to propose, say, look, this is a virus, here is this virus. Uh, and there was a very prominent retrovirologist who said HIV does not cause AIDS. And he still, to this day, still states that. Uh, and uh, I don't understand his rationale. I haven't investigated it in a while, but um, all of our all of our studies know that it's it's that if you get exposed to the HIV virus and it starts replicating inside of you, uh, if you don't get treatment, you will likely develop what's called acquired immune deficiency syndrome, and you will you will succumb, uh, typically within five to fifteen years. Now, uh, there, the, the treatment for HIV has gotten so good now mm-hmm. that uh, they're able to extend that period of, of no, sim- no severe symptoms mm-hmm. for many, many, many years. And they're starting to find several groups of, of people out there, what they call long-term non-progressors, who basically have HIV in their blood, but they cannot detect the development of the acquired immune deficiency sim- symptoms. Have, has there been any attempt to study those people and why? No, they're working. It's working like crazy. It's it's unclear. They're looking at the genetics. There may be a certain genetic component to these people that they're able to respond differently than other people. But possibly with CRISPR Cas9, mm-hmm. we could yeah. change that. Mm-hmm. So we this this is see this is I think one of the the really great positives too is that now now you have these group of people. Who, who seem to not manifest any of these the, the symptoms, right? Um, you find the gene that's maybe making them immune to it, you take it out, you, you put it in a vaccine, and now suddenly you have something against this disease who not too long ago was crippling the nation. It's, uh, it's but it's crippling many countries. Uh, South Africa is, is ravaged by HIV uh, and tuberculosis. So there's a huge problem. So that's another possibility to kind of flip back into genetically mod- genetic modification, which I don't know if you really want me to. No, you're fine. So there are certain genetic diseases that are a result of a single nucleotide chain or one amino acid chain change in a big protein. A cystic fibrosis is one of these. We know that we delete one amino acid three nucleotides that code for that amino acid gets deleted in a gene that uh, that is almost 1,500 amino acids long. It's a very big gene. And that causes the disease cystic fibrosis. And people with the severe forms of the disease are, are lucky if they live to 30. And they have big problems with clearing mucus out of their lungs. If you could correct with CRISPR editing, make him a GMO, that is gene therapy. Gene therapy has been tried and failed a number of times to correct small gene problems in, in people. Uh, but I think with, again, with CRISPR-Cas9, that's going to uh, bring it back up again and allow for some new, new, uh, new mechanisms for treating patients with genetic diseases. Interesting. So, so I want to take this into another another route. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we talked a little bit. We talked about this a little bit, but I want to dive into it, it more to help the audience understand what it is. Um, there's a there's a concept in science that we all know as is correlation is not equal causation. 
Um, and we talked about that a little bit when we were talking about vaccines, because like with that study, we just saw one study with the eight people, with the eight children that um, didn't even establish a causation, just yeah. established just a, a potential yeah. link mm-hmm. or correlation between vaccines and, and autism. So could you explain exactly what correlation is not cut? does not equal causation means um, and and why that's important for people to understand the, so, the difference when, between a correlation and an actual establishing causation. Okay. So what, uh, again, so this, uh, when, when people start studying a disease, they try to start measuring all the parameters that they can. Uh, and it's it's coming now to where uh, we're getting tools that allow to give us a lot of information, like genome sequencing. Say that somebody was developing a tumor. So they take some of their normal cells, they take some of the tumor cells and do a full genome sequencing on there. And they want to find the mutation that's in the, um, in the tumor cells but not in the host cells that try to find what is the mutation. And it turns out that with a lot of cancers, there's probably anywhere from four to six key mutations that make it become a metastatic uh, disease. So, uh, so there's, they can look at these, but there's when you start looking at genome sequences and you're looking at thousands and thousands of genes, there's genes that change but have no relationship with the disease. There's a correlation that when a person has the disease or the tumor is there, this gene is changed. That's called a passenger mutation. Now there's certain genes that are what they call driver mutations. These are the ones that cause some kind of physiological change. And so to be able to identify that takes dissecting that gene out and studying it in a very controlled situation. So you can see if you change this gene in a certain cell, it starts making its way towards tumor progression. Mm. And so that's how you determine causation. You have to isolate and narrow things down, but there's often a correlation of certain changes with the disease that may have nothing to do with the causation. Mm. So it takes a lot longer to establish causation and this is, you know, to bring it back to microbiology, this goes back to what we call Cox postulates. From, I don't know if you remember that yeah. or not. But how did you establish that a disease is caused by a certain bacterium? You have to find that bacterium in all cases of the disease. You have to be able to isolate that bacterium. You make culture and pure culture and study it. Um, then you introduce that organism into a healthy host and most Often this is done in animal studies. And that animal has to develop the disease again, and you have to re-isolate the disease organism. So there's four steps to Koch's postulates. Now, there's times we can do that, and there's times we can't do that. There are certain diseases, like HIV. Uh, it mutates so fast that it's hard well, to... Well, that's why we can't get a vaccine, because it mutates really fast. Uh, but to be able to establish that you can't ethically take HIV and put it into somebody yeah. to say, are, and there's no good animal models that shows human HIV, is it, it only deals in humans. So yeah. you can't ethically do yeah. the Koch's postulates mm-hmm. to prove yes. uh, that. And there are certain diseases that are not culturable, uh, mm-hmm. one, of, one of which um, we, we talk about is 
you may have heard prions. These are the infectious proteins. Yeah. The, it's not an agent. It's no nucleic acid. It's actual a protein. It's uh, the chronic wasting syndrome or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. That if you eat this, you get uh, plaques. Mad, mad cow disease. Mad cow mm. disease. If you eat if you eat a cow with the mad cow protein, and you eat that protein, it starts making your normal proteins in your brain misfold, and it creates plaques. And over a long period of time, you get uh, severe uh, deficiencies, and it kills you. Mm. They can also get come from um, eating a, a just human brain, right? Like from, yeah, like there Kuru. was Kuru exactly. Yeah, um, lesson learned: don't be a cannibal. <laughs> and if you do, don't eat brains. Yeah, or at least cord. at least don't eat the brain part. I know it's the most appetizing looking piece, but stay away from the brain. <laughs> um, so so just to summarize real quick, correlation is not equal causation. Um, basically. Just because there's a high incidence of of something that occurs from, say, like a gene or or having some kind of habit or behavior, does not mean that it necessarily causes it. So, one hundred, not 100% of the people that perform this behavior or have this gene, um, if it's just a correlation, 100% of those people aren't going to develop condi the condition. Right. Whereas if it causes it, then if you have if you do this behavior or if you have this gene or if you possess this thing, then you're going to develop this thing. Right. Correct. Okay. And so the reason why I wanted to talk about that is because we always hear in in media sources and on the news and everything that so and so thing doing such thing or eating such thing has a correlation with another thing and the news will take that and say this causes this mm -hmm. so i just want everyone to realize that it's not it's not typically a causation it's typically a correlation and even then it's most likely that thing or that food that you're eating isn't going to cause what the issue is yeah so and and take us to something that a lot of our audience is familiar with right obesity um, there's a very big correlation that obesity um, increases the incidence of heart disease. But then you also have um, a lot of obese people out there who um, are perfectly healthy. Right? Relatively, yes. Yeah, relatively yeah. healthy. Yeah. More, more so than their healthy weight um, or healthy BMI counterparts. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's just an interesting thing. You know, um, speaking on that. I don't know if you know if you would know anything about this. This is kind of out of your out of your scope. Um, but people do say, at least I've heard, that obesity is is a is a genetic thing. Is there any truth to that? Oh man, I there is. I'm not gonna name any names, but I know one professor in ASU who was harping on this hardcore. He's all about this. Like we'll have to obesity to... is caused by your genes. We'll no matter what you do. You are gonna you are gonna become obese if you have the genetic predisposition to become obese. It I think calorie, you might know who calorie, talking about. <laughs> calories and nutrition control is, is a very complex issue. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. And so one of the things that has been and again one of these correlation studies is yeah. that 
you may have heard that people are now studying what they call microbiomes of yes. various areas. Mm -hmm. The gut microbiome mm -hmm. is one of those, and that's one of the easiest to study. And as an example, uh, there's one disease called Clostridium difficile that people get. If you have to take antibiotics a lot, it kills off most of the normal, healthy, great bacteria in your gut. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, this other organism called Clostridium difficile starts to overgrow. And it can cause major diarrhea symptoms. And it sounds not so appetizing, but the best therapy that has come out is what they call fecal microbiota transplants. So yes, yes, I've heard of that. So they transplant uh, stool from a healthy person into someone with... Clostridium difficile. So what I always wanted to know, sorry to interrupt, how do they actually perform the transplant? Like what, I guess, orifice There's a couple of different ways they go know. into. There's a I couple hope of not orally. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they actually, well, they do it through gavage. They they insert a tube that goes all the way down in your duodenum. Oh. And so okay. you don't have to eat. <laughs> yeah. There's no pills. I was always There's no so soup. Curious about. Well, there's how also it an, 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 oh. just an enema. Okay. Basically. Okay. okay, that's a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so there's there's a couple of different ways yes. they can get yes. it there. Because yes. you actually don't want it to go through your, your stomach where it's highly acidic. You want to get it straight into your gotcha. okay. duodenum so Makes that sense. it can get into the small Makes intestines. So, uh, so again, so there's these cor there's some correlations mm -hmm. with obesity and certain, certain gut flora. Mm -hmm. So, or that people who have obesity... Their gut flora has changed. We don't know what comes first, mm -hmm. and it'll it'll be. Oh, interesting. so does the change in your gut microbiome change like happen first? We or, don't know. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's so. The, that's, that's the question. That's one of the big questions. Gotcha. So that's uh, you know, um, you know, yeah. Fighting weight can be a very difficult thing for people. Yes, that's the big challenge that we uh, that we're taking on right now. Since we're on the topic of the microbiome, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, and once again, this is a little bit out of your, out of your scope, but I guess the whole this whole podcast is. Um, how much does our nutrition have uh, of an influence on the microbiome? This is something that I was trying to read the original scientific literature. There is some studies out there now that, you know, one of the big hot things is to take probiotics. Right? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. That's where they actually culture a range of bacteria and you take it in a pill. Well, there's some scientists out there that are saying, no, 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 no. You need prebiotics. You need to yeah. eat what promotes a healthy set of bacteria. And he has his I've sort of magical diets that, that are out there. And I don't know what to think of those yet. <laughs> but... Uh, what you eat will dramatically influence your okay. your gut microbiome. I do believe that. Yeah. And so if you change your eating habits, you will change your microbiome. And so um, I, kn I know for one example, like uh, uh, yogurt, like dairy yogurt from cows, um, that's kind of the, the, the staple food that is touted to be full of, of live active cultures and, and everything like that. Uh, what other... What other foods, if, is it like every food has some kind of... Yeah, contribution towards a healthy microbiome? Yeah, or is it specific? Yeah. 
categories. Uh, Assuming, well, of course, these are natural foods, not like very minimally processed foods. Right. So yeah, uh, if you look at it, most things, like I think most vegetables are not going to have a ton of of nor of, of bacteria that that no. unless they're soil contaminated, but you typically wash most of that off. Yeah. Um, the uh, but the, most anything that's from from a dairy, milk, cheeses. Um, they're, they all have their own microbiota that's in there. Mm. So, uh, but if you take, you know, if, if you think of a steak, mm. it's basically taken from a sterile site. Yeah. It has no to, microbiota you and you have to cook it, which, or, but it more destroys bacteria. Bacteria. Yeah. But there are certain people that take, uh, you know, if you eat sushi, that's raw fish, it's mm. still almost all protein, but it's. Should be basically fairly aseptic, mm-hmm. unless it's been mishandled. Yeah. So that's, you, don't I want, you don't want to eat that kind of sushi. <laughs> today, speaking of that, today I just watched um, oh, uh, a BBC video about all the different types of, of parasites and worms and everything that could that can get in you, and they're talking about a, sushi. Yeah. About mm-hmm. sushi and and the uh, beef tapeworm, pork tapeworm, and all that stuff. And I don't know if I can. You don't remember? We went over the fish. No, tapeworm. we did. We did. We did. And. Um, and there was that one that swims up your urethra, the fish. Oh, ah, that, that was I have in the video seen this. Too. This was that's oh, a, oh my gosh. gosh. Anyway, um, Jay, do you have any other questions? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up. With so, one quick uh, what what uh? So, Michael asked, uh, what kind of foods contribute to the healthy microbiome? What do you think is uh is is doing the opposite? What what do you think is part of the the American diet in general? That I don't think we know. It? We don't. I don't think we know enough yet. Okay. Because okay. if you think about it, bacteria are typically great. Well, actually, yeah. I just read an article. Because you know how they, there's this whole big debate about a lot of the things that Americans eat are highly acidic. Um, so that's usually what's contributing to our health problems. That's So that's my train of thought. But you said we don't really know. I don't think. Well, one of the things, my daughter, who's breastfeeding right now, yeah. uh, gave, gave me a really interesting article from the Proceedings of the National Academy, a very prestigious journal. Mm-hmm. And what they found is they were analyzing human milk compared to cow milk, some of the other things. There's apparently a very complex uh, polysaccharide that humans make that no other mammals make. Huh. And it turns out that this complex polysaccharide specifically enriches for a certain bacteria in your gut. And and they were talking about this is it, it, how this led to... Breastfed babies have less problems with certain diseases, mm. but you know they get the immunoglobulins from the mother because the mother passes that through yeah. the breast milk, so they're getting passively immunized mm-hmm. with with antibodies, but, including that polysaccharide. But the polysaccharide helps enrich for a certain set of bacteria in the gut, okay. and this bacteria was just really. It, it was it helped the kids. They gained weight faster. They thrived a little bit better. So so that's one. Th- so we don't. There's so many things that we don't know about what we eat and how it affects the microbiome. I don't know of if things there's certain bad things that you want to take. Well, clearly if you take antibiotics, that's one yes, of the things yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. that will Definitely. wipe out your yeah. gut bacteria. Which is why they always kind of suggest, hey, if if you're taking antibiotics for such a long time, you want to restore that. Which is why I'm guessing uh, it's always recommended to take some kind of a pre-probiotic. Probiotic yeah. or yogurt. I mean, that's mm-hmm. you know, that's uh, 
my son had ear infections uh, every almost every three weeks for two years and he'd take antibiotics and he would get yeast infections because it would just overgrow mm -hmm. until we started feeding him yogurt and he wow. stopped the yeast infections yeah that's crazy so um, you, you you do you have to think about nutrition about what you eat. We don't know enough yet, but that would be a really good area of study is what what is gonna manipulate to a more healthy microbiome. How do you get it that way? Yeah, I know I attended a conference um two years ago and uh there was a speaker who who touched on the gut microbiome and its and its interaction with the whole system. Um and so I, I thought that was really neat. I didn't really understand it at the time because I was still fairly new to nutrition and everything um but yeah I, I think in maybe like five years we'll we'll have a very rich understanding of it because there is a lot of research coming out about there's it. a lot of research going on on being able to analyze the microbiome it's not mm -hmm. an easy thing to study as yeah. you're dealing with thousands of different species of organisms mm -hmm. usually uh and to be able to analyze that data and do the correlation and causation studies are difficult so to, to bring it back to breastfeeding, because it, it, it sounds like, obviously, breastfeeding has a lot of advantages and everything to do it. So would our, our children that are not breastfed, are they, um, do they have a greater likeliness to developing like issues? disease and, and things well like I that. think they have they have more problems with infectious disease early on early on. I mean I uh, I think after a period of time kind of normalizes it, it normalizes out gotcha okay cool so just for this last bit I just want I just would want to ask if you could provide um, just some quick general health tips like I know um, I know. Sorry to be. <laughs> <laughs> we are a health and wellness podcast. Um, um, okay, so, so for example, like one, washing your hands. I think people misunderstand. Yeah. Downplay. They do it too much. Down. Well, not Sometimes even too much, do but too people much, yeah. downplay the importance of washing your hands, um, or, or well, on that level. Well, c clearly, if you you know, one of the big problems is 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 that you know your hands are a great what we call transmission device you yeah. get something on your hands and you rub your eyes they rub your nose mm -hmm. and you inoculate yourself so yeah. this is a great way that that uh, various number of viruses are transmitted so if you're in a place where you think you're getting contamination use an adequate hand washing now the adequate hand washing is typically you have to lather up for about 20 25 seconds just the, you're supposed to sing the ABCs, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. uh, to to really do that, and yeah. some people take it to the extreme and will do that two or three times. You know, I, I worry about being there's there's this other philosophy of what they call the hygiene hypothesis, that if you're too clean early on, yeah. you are you're at at risk of de developing you know more. Uh, possibly autoimmune diseases or allergic diseases. So uh, I think that you need to be exposed to microorganisms as a child. You absolutely do. I, and I think that's, I, I, I probably heard that such a long time ago. And, and it made Playing so some much, dirt. Yeah, it makes so much sense <laughs> to me because if you're never exposed to, um, to any of these microbes, how do you, how does your body um, develop any ways to fight it? Yeah. Well, but you need to develop your own microbiome, yeah. and getting as much of these varied organisms, I think, is a good deal. Yeah. Also, I have a dog. 
as a kid. That's a good thing. Yeah. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah. My mom always let my mom and dad always told me to go outside. <laughs> Going outside's a good thing too. Yeah. <laughs> Play in the dirt. I think so. I mean, so yeah, being clean is a good thing, but you can mm. be too clean. My personal opinion. Uh, Do you think people overuse hand sanitizer? That's another thing. Oh, I'm not worried about it because it's primarily isopropanol <clears throat> or ethanol. Yeah. It's not. There's not going to be. We won't be developing resistance to that. Gotcha. Uh, it other other than drying out your hands. Yeah. It's you know. It's I. That doesn't bother me in the least. Oh, gotcha. Interesting. So wash your hands. Get don't vaccinated. Wash your hands too much. <laughs> wash your hands properly. Just sing the ABCs do while it, you sing. Don't do it two or three or times while you while you wash. Yeah. Um. Vaccinate yourself. Vaccinate your kids. If you if you have kids. Let your kids go outside. Let your kids go outside. Don't put them in the bubble. Yes. <laughs> um, and GMOs are safe. Vaccines don't cause autism. That's five big things right there. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share? <laughs> uh, take care of yourself mentally. Don't let yourself get run down. I mean, that's mm-hmm. you gotta you gotta be entertained. You have to keep your mind sharp, and do a variety of things. I agree, 100%. I do have one more question, though. <laughs> I do have one more question, and this has been bugging me for such a long time, so I, I, I'm glad that Mike brought you in today. I heard somewhere, I don't know if it was from a professor or maybe just some random person, but I heard that, because we were talking about yogurt, correct? I heard that if you consume yogurt that's been, you know, that has a lot of added sugars, that completely defeats the purpose of, of, of having the prebiotics in it. Some something in like with combining the sugar with the yogurt kills the the bacteria. The bacteria, exactly. Is there any not, truth to I, that? I have not heard that. I have heard some people claim that artificial sweeteners are bad, so that you don't you want you don't want to get a yogurt that's got no that that's full of saccharin or Splenda. Or that's something. probably what it is because a lot of yogurts are filled with artificial sweeteners, right? That sugar, uh-huh. sugar-free. Yeah. That's, that's probably so I, th- I think there's there's I, I I don't know for a fact that those are uh, microbicidal. I haven't seen any studies. Yeah. I think somebody would have figured that out a long time okay. ago. If that were right. the case. Yeah. So do you, you, so it sounds like someone just kind of peddling. Some yeah. Mm-hmm. Some BS. I, <laughs> 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 Buy my yogurt. And have artificial sweeteners. Got <laughs> the real stuff. <laughs> awesome. Um, Doctor McGee. Um, I know. I don't think you really have any social media things or anything for anyone to follow, but I know you do have the lab that has social media, and you want you talked about that last time. Do you want to talk about that again? Uh, well, it's not really. It's it's primarily for scientists. It's a okay. It's, it's, <laughs> Just curious. It's, it's a website where we sell plasmids or genes. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, weren't you talking about something like um, the, the your lab or something like that has uh, like a Facebook account and like that's the that's our DNA that's our plasma the plasmid repository. Okay, gotcha. Um, if so you, you can... if you need any plasmids, you need a scientist. <laughs> any scientists out there, go to dnaasu.org. Dnaasu, I like that. All right, well. Thank you so much for being here again. I promise I won't lose this episode this time. <laughs> All right. It's come a third time. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much again. You're welcome.